You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Activist intifada warnings as the U.S. recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital. How Ethiopia's surveillance was discovered. Criminals flock to cryptocurrency sites with everything from DDoS to miners to theft. E-loggers are found infesting WordPress sites. Android app development tools get quick fixes. Apple updates macOS High Sierra, again. What Uber may have thought it was doing when it paid off its hackers. A Section 702 Surveillance Authority update and a Jeopardy champ faces hacking charges, and Crumtech warns about Ashley Madison, on grounds of security, not propriety. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, December 7, 2017. As the U.S. prepares to make good on its long-promised recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, Israel and the U.S. brace for a wave of hacktivism expected to accompany the promised second intifada. Security concerns center on fear of physical violence, of course, but ancillary hacktivism is to be expected. Citizen Lab confirmed the Ethiopian government's use of intercept tools procured from Cyberbit to surveil dissidents when it connected suspicious emails to a misconfigured command and control server that exposed the government's target list. Cryptocurrencies continue to draw criminal attention. Denial-of-service attacks remain popular against Bitcoin sites. Over the past quarter, a study by security company Imperva Encapsula found some 73% of Bitcoin-related sites experienced a DDoS attack. Cryptocurrency sites are highly sensitive to disruption since they depend upon high availability for their viability. A planned Bitcoin rival, Electronium, failed to launch as its proprietors pulled their offering in the face of effective hacking. An updated version of the Quant Trojan is raiding cryptocurrency wallets. And NiceHash, a popular Bitcoin mining tool, is reported to have suffered a compromise with some $56 million in coins stolen. A keylogger has been found in more than 5,000 infected WordPress sites. This sort of script has been circulating in the wild since April, according to researchers at security company Sukuri. It logs keystrokes site visitors enter into form fields, and it sometimes also loads a cryptocurrency miner. The most dangerous infections occur on sites that run online stores, where of course credit card details are entered at checkout. The keylogger picks those up as well. Russian cyber gangs are particularly active in ransom campaigns against businesses in the UK these days. Serbear remains their most popular strain of ransomware. Extortion demands commonly run to £100,000. Android app development tools are found vulnerable to backdoors. Fixes are in progress. Researchers at security firm Checkpoint found and disclosed the issues. They affect widely used Android integrated development environments, including Android Studio by Google, IntelliJ Idea and Eclipse, both by JetBrain, 
and several reverse engineering tools for Android apps, including APK Tool and Cuckoo Droid. The companies are working quickly to close the holes. While the West Coast, and in particular Silicon Valley, get the lion's share of the attention for tech startups, there's a growing number of companies getting their start on the East Coast, in no small part thanks to the security ecosystem built around the federal government. Drew Cohen is CEO of Masterpiece Solutions, a Maryland company that benefits from the pool of talent coming up through the federal government and also helps grow new startups. It's easier today to start a business than it's ever been in terms of infrastructure because I can get computing as a service. I can get kind of anything I need as a service so I can start a small business that looks like it has scale very rapidly. So it's a still a great climate for startups and there are capabilities that are available to startups today that were never available in the past, pretty much anything as a service. The challenge is that today's startups can't just ride on other platforms. They have to solve what's typically, what's beginning to be called deep technology problems. So they really have to invent something new that creates kind of a 10x change in whatever sector that technology is being applied to. And so the interesting part about that is that means you need talent. That means you need experience. It can't just be a couple guys in their dorm creating a web page, a social network, if you will, and having the next Facebook. You have to have guys that really understand technology deeply and can innovate and create new hard technologies. And the interesting part about that is that's kind of typically what the government's been focused on. And so the skills that people have learned doing government research and government technology development is more applicable to kind of today's startup world than the rapid throw something together, make an app, stick it on the app store and see if you make money approach. And I think that benefits this area. And it's one of the reasons why I think you're seeing a shift from West Coast investment to, you know, an emerging ecosystem here in Maryland. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost as if there's a, I would say, a a maturation of the ecosystem. Yeah, I would call it, you know, experience driven startups. That's kind of the term that we're using. So you you can't just get into it, you know, as kids out of school, you got to have some basis of knowledge and, and experience and technical depth, applied technical depth that can only be learned over time in order to really have the kind of breakthroughs that can be the foundation and underpinning of the next generation of, of uh, innovation. And, and I suspect, too, from an investor's point of view, um, that puts investors at ease when they're putting their money toward people who can demonstrate their abilities through their government experience. Yeah, the combination of, of the demonstrated abilities, but also there's technical vetting, right? Now I can look at something and go, I see why this is 10x better I see why this is hard to replicate, and I see why there's a competitive advantage in doing it this way, right? A sustainable competitive advantage. And those are things that, um, so yeah, I think you hit it right, that investors invest in teams, and they invest in real innovation that provides a sustainable competitive advantage at scale. That's Drew Cohen from Masterpiece Solutions. Apple has again updated macOS High Sierra to fix security holes, This latest upgrade includes a permanent fix to the root bug, the one that lets you in by typing root, that proved surprisingly slippery last week. A bit more has emerged concerning the Uber data breach. 
The rideshare company paid hackers who got into its data $100,000 to quietly destroy the information they took. It now seems, according to Reuters and Business Insider, that the identity of the hackers are known and that they weren't the cliché Russian mobsters. They were instead the even more cliché, if that's possible, young man living in Florida with his mom and a subcontractor he engaged to help him with GitHub. Their combined hacker weight isn't stated in the coverage. It would be too much to hope that it was 400 pounds. The story is particularly interesting, however, for what it reveals about the then-current thinking at Uber. They decided to treat it as part of their bug bounty program, and Uber did, and presumably still does, have a bug bounty program operated by HackerOne. It's easy to think that if you've handled it as a bug report, you're done, and one can imagine how the Uber security and legal executives could have talked themselves into this way of looking at things. After all, bug bounties are legitimate, useful ways of helping security, but there are three problems. First, you generally want people to know you've paid a nice bug bounty. That's how you get more people involved. Second, the hacker's ask had at least the coloration of extortion, pay or I'll tell everyone. And third, data was stolen and there was a breach, and paying a bounty isn't an alternative to compliance with disclosure laws and regulations. As Section 702 Electronic Surveillance Authority approaches sunset and renewal works its way slowly through the U.S. Congress, the administration suggests that aspects of the program might legally continue in the absence of reauthorization. I'll take accused hackers for 500, Alex. The answer is the former Jeopardy champion accused of illegally accessing systems at Adrian College in Michigan. Who is Stephanie Joss? That's right, the 2012 Jeopardy champ who held the since-broken record for longest winning streak ever by a woman on the popular game show is facing two felony counts in Michigan. Unauthorized access to a computer, computer programmer network, and using a computer to commit a crime. The first charge carries a punishment of up to seven years in prison, a $5,000 fine, and paying the cost of prosecution. The other charge is punishable by up to five years in prison, a $10,000 fine, and the cost of prosecution. Miss Jass is, of course, to be considered innocent until proven guilty. Let's play another round. I'll take Leaky Hanky Panky Emporia for 300 Alex. And the answer is, the default security setting is to share your private key right back. The question, what does Ashley Madison do when someone shares their private key with you? Researchers at security firm Crumtech are the ones sounding this particular warning. It's not that Ashley Madison has been hacked. That happened back in 2015. Instead, it's possible, Forbes magazine notes, to set up a bunch of bogus accounts and share your way into a trove of private pictures and other stuff. Pictures, of course, can be de-anonymized with a variety of readily available and entirely legal tools, like Google Image Search or TinEye. The potential for blackmail seems real enough, especially since some 64% of Ashley Madison users are thought by Chromtech to simply leave the default settings in place. Ashley Madison's corporate parent, Avid Life Media, disagrees that this is a bug. They told Gizmodo that they don't intend to make any changes since they see the automatic key exchange as an intended feature. That's one way of looking at it. In the meantime, why not take fidelity for a gazillion and avoid this kind of jeopardy? As Ashley Madison itself points out, life is indeed short. One final note, a more serious one. It's Pearl Harbor Day, and it's a good time to remember the veterans of the greatest generation for their service and sacrifice. 
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, we saw recently that uh, NIST actually wrapped up a call for algorithm nominations for post-quantum computing. Can you give us an overview? What is uh, NIST after here? So a lot of people are very worried about the impact that a quantum computer will have on the cryptography that we currently use on the Internet. Uh, it's been known for a while, actually, that if a quantum computer were ever built, uh, then all the cryptography we use right now, uh, all the public key cryptography, I should say, uh, would be vulnerable. And so people uh, have always been concerned about that possibility. And more recently, they've been worried that quantum computers uh, seem to be coming faster than expected. And also the standardization process for new public key algorithms that would be resistant to those quantum computers uh, would take some time. And so NIST is trying to get ahead of things here, and uh, they put out a request for researchers to submit different proposals for crypto systems that would be resilient to quantum computers. And uh, the deadline for that was just at the end of November. It remains to be seen how many got submitted, but it'll be really interesting to follow this process. So NIST gets these uh, submissions, and what happens next? Is there a public review process? Yeah, that's one of the great things about this, actually, is that everything's going to be done in public. All, all the candidate submissions are going to be placed on a web page, and it's going to allow researchers to evaluate each other's submissions. So people then can look at what other people are thinking, um, and eventually the hope is that the research community will converge on a few favorites, essentially, that have the best security, the best efficiency, and other desirable properties. And then some subset of those will be chosen for uh, standardization. 
And what kind of timeline do you suspect we're on with that sort of thing? Well, the call for nominations just ended, like I said, at the end of November. Uh, by the end of December, I think NIST is planning to put up on their webpage a list of all the uh, all the submissions. And then NIST is looking at roughly a two-year time frame over which to evaluate the submissions and then come to a conclusion. All right. So uh, not right around the corner, but still not that, not that far out either. That's right. And like I said, people are getting very concerned. We've seen announcements uh, from IBM and from Google uh, over the course of the past year about developments and progress that they've had in building smaller scale quantum computers. But this is making people, like I said, get really concerned about the possibility that a larger scale quantum computer will be, will be built within the next decade. All right. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.